Hi, this is Caleb from Mount Vernon, Ohio. Dusted is a story wonk podcast. To show your support and for exclusive content, visit patreon.com slash storywonk. Thanks. Everyone and welcome to the show. I'm Alistair Stevens. And I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is Dusted, your inappropriately gesturing Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast. <laughs> I think this week we should just phone it in. I think we record the first third of the podcast, and I'll play in a selection of classical music to pad out the hour. Exactly. People we will be making gestures to right, represent exactly. our commentary. Just imagine yes. that we're here. You can hear some air moving exactly. past the mic from time to time <laughs> as we gesture emphatically at each other about the wonder and glory that is... Hush, the 10th mm-hmm. episode of season four of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and a serious contender, not just for the top 10 list of all Buffy episodes, but a top 10 list of modern television episodes. This is a standout. Yeah, it's incredibly ambitious, and it does things in a television format that at the time, television was kind of dismissed as a, even even you know in 1999 when this aired, was dismissed as kind of a disposable sort of guilty pleasure kind of medium. And I think that Joss Whedon, with this episode and with his entire body of work in itself, um, kind of was a big part of changing that, of, of showing that you can tell a story in an advanced, ambitious, and sophisticated way within the television format. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought of it before, but I think there is an argument to be made for Hush being the vanguard of the golden age of television that we're still enjoying yeah. 15 years later. Mm-hmm. And of really closing out the 20th century in style, this was the last episode of Buffy to air in 1999. It aired on December the 14th. 1999. And we can debate, of course, whether or not that means that it was the last episode of the 20th century. We can debate whether the year 2000 was the first year of the 21st century or the year 2001 was the first year of the 21st century. Personally, I had my fill of those conversations 15 years ago. So as far as I'm concerned, common usage wins out. This is the last Buffy of the 20th century and we will return in a whole new millennium next week on Dusted. This episode, of course, written and directed by Joss Whedon. Shall we just get into it? I'm a little daunted by Uh, Hush, I have to admit. Uh This is one of my favorite episodes of television, one of the most ambitious, as you said, episodes of television. It's a big subject and the more you analyze it, the more you scratch the surface, Mm -hmm. the more you find contained therein. There are entire layers of meaning and significance to this episode that it took me years to unpick. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a really fun conversation, I'm sure. Let's get right into it. No, previously this week, because we need every second that we can get to dedicate to the episode. We begin the cold open with Professor Walsh talking about communication as action and as intent, about the connections between two people. Buffy is called upon to volunteer, and Professor Walsh urges her to lay down upon her desk. Riley is also called upon, and if by this point you aren't feeling a little uncomfortable... (laughs) 
perhaps you're not paying attention. When did it trip for you? When did you understand that this was a dream sequence? Oh, as soon as Buffy lies down on the table, because I was like, okay, now that's weird, you know? And then when when you see Riley's face, you know, and then of course it's confirmed when Riley says, if I kiss you, the sun will go down, you know, and at that point. Yes, mm -hmm. he does say that. He does say that. What is the significance of that line, do you think? Well, the sun goes down and Buffy's life changes. When the sun goes down, she goes from being regular girl to being vampire slayer as much as she is a regular girl during the day as well mm -hmm. i mean there's the slayer is part of who she is all the time but she starts her work her life becomes dangerous when the sun goes down so i feel like for me i read that as when i kiss you when we start this everything's going to change and it's going to get a lot more dangerous yeah um i don't know how did you read that line no i like that i think that's certainly mm -hmm. one one valid interpretation i think that also it speaks to an idea that we haven't addressed much yet, but which will become more significant as we move through the back half of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is Buffy as the Slayer, as that being her primary identity mm -hmm. and Buffy being in and of herself something of a creature of the night. Sure. But it also works rather beautifully just within the span of this episode. We're going to address explicitly within the text the idea of the gentleman as a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. And this is far and away of of the times that Buffy addresses fairy tales as a as a you know cultural form as a storytelling form. This is far and away the most successful. This, mm -hmm. I mean, yes. this eclipses Der Kinderstadt from Killed by Death. Oh, and, certainly. And Gingerbread, of course, which by is the mile. other explicit yeah. uh, fairy tale reference. It just eclipses those so fully and so completely, and it stands alone as really the only time that Buffy is a fairy tale. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The transition from. Sunnydale as a voiced town and Sunnydale as a silent town mm -hmm. can be seen, I think, as the demarcation of of our entry into the realm of fairy. That's the moment yeah. at which it becomes mm -hmm. unearthly and otherworldly. And I think that that's reflected in what Riley says. I think that the sun going down, the transition into the night mm -hmm. is absolutely redolent of that that symbolic transition well and the kiss in fairy tales the the prince kisses the princess and she wakes up which right is she becomes herself again our first indication of the way in which the structure of this episode mm -hmm. is an inversion of the usual fairy tale structure yeah here we begin with a kiss and end with a scream yep that's not accidental mm -hmm. it is such a it exhibits and demonstrates and 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 revels in such a profound understanding of its medium yeah. This mm -hmm. is, I mean, so far and away the best episode of Buffy that we've and seen to date. So far and away, Whedon's most accomplished script. Well, yeah, and beautifully shot, too. I mean, this thing looks like a movie. It does. I know that they put a lot of resources into this because this was a big adventure for them during the fourth season. Um, and I really like what they did with it, you know. But and we certainly and you, had some speculation at the end of last week's yeah. episode, something blue, that perhaps... The attention of Perhaps the powers we that be saving... wasn't entirely on something blue. <laughs> right. We were saving budget money for this. This looks just stunning. It, really it is does. beautifully directed. Every moment, every frame is absolutely gorgeous. Um, yeah, and I, I love it. So Riley kisses Buffy. Day fades tonight, and suddenly he and Buffy are alone. Out in the hall, a girl is humming a simple tune, then sings about the coming of the gentleman. And when Riley touches Buffy on the shoulder, she has a flash of a smiling, demonic face. And all at once, she's back in the lecture hall, being gently teased by Willow about sleeping in class. Outside, they run into Riley, who walks with Buffy after Willow excuses herself to go to Wicca Group, lingering just long enough to spy on some nascent flirtation. 
it's a really nice opening. It is a nice opening. Now, this moment with Willow, right, yeah. where we have almost this this musical drop-in yep. in the background that has that playful kind of plink, 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 while she's watching Buffy and Riley going off together. Did that feel at all out of place to you? It felt a little weird to me. It felt very true to my understanding of who Willow is in the broadest sense. Yeah. Willow post Oz, Willow post something blue, though, as we'll discuss in just a few minutes, something blue may Apparently as well be non-canonical no, exactly, at this point. Has no impact on Because anything, we're all sure. gung-ho about Willow spending time in her Wiccan group and working on her powers and working on her spellcasting, exactly. and that's all great with no reservation whatsoever. <laughs> that's fine, I guess. Yeah, it did feel strange in the moment, but it feels like it feels like a different and and in some sense more authentic take on Willow than we've seen lately. Yeah, to me it just felt strange in the moment it felt like it belonged in a different episode. It's just this one like 10 seconds of this very playful and the musical cue that came in underneath her felt weird to me. It felt overdone. Yeah. It felt a little overcooked, I guess, is and it's, it's the only note in the episode that felt a little off to me. No, I can because I don't see feel that. like it has a resonance in the rest of the episode. Except that she was, you know, she was obviously, you know, removing herself to give Buffy and Riley a chance to and spend some time together. So she can and enjoy then her vicarious Right, right. Yeah, no, I don't know. It just, it felt a little weird to me. It felt a little No, I can, I can mm-hmm. definitely see that. Which to honestly, me, in, in an episode like this, that's so, so good. Yeah. It's going to be nitpicks like that, that catch my attention. Yeah. Partly I feel as though we're almost consciously resetting Willow. I feel as though this is a reminder of... Yeah, that Willow has come through. Mm -hmm. Because I wonder how much we've lost her over the course of the last few episodes. I wonder Mm -hmm. how true to Whedon's concept of Willow, this new, evolved, more adult Willow is. And certainly, this Willow does feel younger Mm -hmm. than Willow has felt for a while, for most of the season, in fact. And that's not to say that this is a, you know, season three or heaven help us, even a season two Willow. Right. Because lest we forget, it was Whedon who introduced adult Willow back in the freshman at the beginning of the season. Mm -hmm. So I can see this as as a compatible, albeit, you're right, different version Mm -hmm. of that character. And it's certainly a striking and, and conspicuous setup. In it, terms of the yeah. movement of the camera, you're right, the musical cue. And after the, you know. the prophetic dream and the the genuine creepiness of that opening, to move into this tonally um, kind yeah. of musical space. Yeah, it's a little weird. No, I see that exactly. I think that arguably what we're also doing is introducing music as a major narrative element. Yes. In this mm-hmm. episode, I mm-hmm. think that in a subtle, almost subliminal way that that primes us to be listening as much as we're watching and yeah. more than ever. You know, mm-hmm. this is an episode that demands the full engagement of as many senses as you can oh, it muster. Does. Mm-hmm. For me, that that isn't the part of the opening that distracts me. Yeah. The part of the opening that distracts me from a narrative structural perspective is the dream itself. Mm-hmm. We're comfortable with and familiar with Buffy's prophetic dreams, but this is far and away the most precise and direct prophetic dream that she's ever had. Oh, certainly, yeah. This is, you know, prophetic dream as overture. This is prophetic Mm -hmm. dream as exposition. Yeah. And usually that's not the way that these things work in the Buffyverse. And if there's a criticism of the movement of the plot in this episode at all, it's simply that. Buffy's final solution to the gentleman, the smashing of the box that Mm -hmm. contains the voices of Sunnydale, is triggered only because of this prophetic dream. 
Because she remembers the box, the girl holding the box in the dream. It's yeah. maybe a little sleight of hand. It's maybe yeah, a little narrative. Know. Hey, look over there, distract. <laughs> I don't know. It actually, it works for me. I, I'm not a big fan of dreams in general. I'm not a big fan of using dreams a lot um, as either prophecy or, you know, exposition or sure. just this attempt that that some will will do to be artsy and yeah. like, you or know, as, and, and obscure, obtuse, and symbol, you know. Yeah. Um, but I actually, Buffy, I think gets a pass because her prophetic dreams are actually part of her gift. It's part of everything that that encompasses being the Slayer and her prophetic dreams. When when there has been a big enough threat coming, she would have them and have specific dreams all the time. But it's not a well that we go to very often. Which I'm glad we don't go yeah, to very yeah. often, which is why I give it a pass when it shows up. And I actually I, I think it's it's OK. That that part doesn't bother me. Who is the girl? The girl. I yes. don't know. There's some, you know, speculation that the girl is Buffy. Is young There's Buffy. There's some speculation uh-huh. that the girl is some kind of, you know, archetypal yeah. princess figure. Mm-hmm. Though, if that were the case, I would expect something a little more explicit, perhaps. Yeah, I don't know. Um, the fact that she's it's so very young, she's the, very pure, she's wearing yeah. white, you know, so. I the mean, fact that it's disconnected from the rest of the episode does make me wonder about it. Yeah. But if you have to establish your exposition... Yeah. Do it fast. Do it with great atmosphere and tone. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think it, it, it works well enough. Certainly. I think it's it's really good. I mean, honestly, it is it, to talk about the things that, that maybe don't work a little bit is so nitpicky because this this episode is about as close to flawless as I think I've ever seen an episode of television be. Sure. Not to give away, you know, <laughs> where I'm going with this, but I don't think I've ever been uh, shy about expressing how much I love Hush. No, know? and we've been looking forward mm-hmm. to this since we started yeah. Dusted. And and I'm glad to say that it absolutely stands up. And you're right. These are, these are nitpicky yeah. elements. But when you're dealing with work at this level, oh, right. the, the tiny imperfections can almost give you more insight than if it were, you know, yeah. in some abstract way, completely flawless. Which exactly. Of course, is impossible anyway. And, and yeah, you're right. There's, I think that we're looking at the imperfections as a means of exploring mm-hmm. what is truly great about this episode, as a means of seeing, you know, by opposition, what is absolutely singular about this episode, rather than seeking to tear it down and and right. And I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure that I would define them as imperfections so much as like like moments of interest because the thing is that we talked about the fact that there's something that happened in here that we can talk about for five minutes over like a 10 second you know clip of video or something that happens or or a musical cue a line from riley about making the sun exactly and talk about what like we've just we've just been going over the cold open and we're already so many (laughs) and the thing is is that that is that means that this terrain is so incredibly rich that even the small moments there is so much that you can pull out from that discussion um so and it's one of the things that i absolutely love about this is that you know i can i can spend five minutes trying to figure out what it means when riley says if i kiss you it'll make the sun go down yeah Yeah. outside both the slayer and her beau lie about their plans for the evening and they're on the brink of a kiss when buffy realizes it riley doesn't have any papers to grade they go their separate ways as buffy repeats the line from her dream fortune favors the brave which I've got to say tripped me up a couple of times yeah. while I've been watching this episode because I don't know that quote that translation yeah. as fortune favors the brave. Mm-hmm. So every time she says it, it makes me. It, I feel that she is misquoting. Isn't it fortune line. favors the bold? It's actually both. 
Oh, there okay. Are, there, it comes from a, a Latin proverb, and uh-huh. there are, I don't know, three or four extant versions of that quote anyway. Uh-huh. And then when you translate that into modern English... Sure. Fortune favors the brave is every bit as legitimate as fortune favors the bold. It depends exactly who she's referencing because mm-hmm. this is used as a motto, as a slogan by military forces all over the world, from the Marine Corps all the way back to you know ancient Roman armies. People sure. have used this particular <laughs> slogan. So I'm not sure exactly who Buffy is is mm-hmm. quoting there or sure. the reference that she's making, but as a reference to the dream, it works well enough, and certainly as as an element in the ongoing story, it's going to play pretty well. Mm-hmm. It's not as strong as I might want the closing line of our cold sure, open to sure. be. Mm-hmm. It feels like an odd, misplaced stress in the yeah, script, mm-hmm. considering how tight and full this yeah. episode is going to be. In any case, we move through our credits, and when we return, Giles is talking on the phone with Buffy and taking notes about her dream and the ominous rhyme. He asks Spike if he's ever heard about the gentleman, but Spike is more concerned with the fact that they are out of Weetabix. Being out of Weetabix, for the record, is the preferred state of, you know, <laughs> what Weetabix. Is, what is Weetabix? It's a it's a grim little pillow of, of whole wheat unhappiness. Oh, <laughs> It's like it's like a mini wheat, only oh, okay. larger and you know darker uh-huh. and and more vexing to the soul. <laughs> Weetabix is is grim. It's yes. grim, you guys. Outside, Xander and Anya are arguing about their relationship. Anya wants to define that relationship. Xander would like to do anything but, and their conversation continues as they intrude on Giles and Spike. Giles, as it turns out, has a friend coming to town for a few days, so Xander is going to need to take care of their tame puppy. The three of them (laughs) bicker as Giles tries to read. So we're establishing, Mm -hmm. I don't even know, a D-plot, an E-plot there with Anya and Xander. Uh One of the marks of virtuoso storytelling which this undoubtedly is is the attention that is paid to these very minor plots Mm -hmm. and the way that they are actually advanced we're not taking a detour we're not introducing a flimsy or inconsequential comedic subplot Mm -hmm. just to give us something to do alongside the main plot we're actually paying attention to where these characters are this is actually a transitive pivotal moment for Anya and Xander. Their relationship is going to be different because of this episode. Yes. And that's just ridiculous. That's just <laughs> showing off. Yeah, it's doing something that you don't have to do and doing it with aplomb and, yeah. <laughs> and sophistication and elegance. Yeah, no, it's really, really nice. Meanwhile, at UC Sunnydale, Willow is attending her Wiccan group. Oh, and I should say, there's we're going to talk in a little while about, well, an element of pronunciation. Mm-hmm. that is going to haunt me for the rest of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a moment. <laughs> One of the other things we're going to talk about while we're turning our attention to things linguistic mm-hmm. is Wicca versus Wiccan. Yes. The show basically uses them interchangeably. <laughs> so I'm going to err toward Wiccan uh, sure. as a as a you know all-purpose descriptor. Uh-huh. So for the purposes of consistency, it's going to be a Wiccan group rather sure. than a Wicca group. I guess. Until I forget, in which case (laughs) all bets are off. After a promising opening to the meeting, we take a hard left turn into youth group territory and the talk turns to bake sales, though the phrase an empowering lemon bunt (laughs) an empowering lemon bunt might be the best phrase in English? That is one of the most wonderful lines. I love that. (laughs) And you know I do an empowering lemon bunt. That is such a beautiful thing. And this is one of the things when I when I talk to my students about the value of specificity, that when you say something and you use a very specific you are so term, right. that does 
everything. And then we have a follow-up line that is done with deliberate inelegance, which I also love. Yeah, then we could get out on our broomsticks and fly around on our broomsticks. Yes. I love how inelegant that is and how deliberately inelegant that is. And we pay a lot of attention, as we should, to Whedon's skill as a storyteller. Mm -hmm. That that we pay attention to the movement of the plot and his introduction and implementation of theme and contradiction and opposition and unification. He is a master storyteller. He is also, and this is a completely different skill set, a fantastic writer. Yes. Just Mm -hmm. his skill with language and you've really pulled out two perfect examples there Uh, yeah the startling and staggering and and scalpel sharp precision Mm. of an empowering lemon bun and the purposeful willful inelegance of get on our broomsticks and ride around on our broomsticks broomsticks, exactly that graceless repetition yeah no it's absolutely beautiful and this is the thing is that apparently at this time so many people were telling Joss that you know the only reason why Buffy's such a big deal is because of all the wonderful this dialogue is yeah one this of the is, one of the stories behind yeah Hush. this is what yes. has become our, our our cult uh mythology here and uh, and he was like okay well then you know he's he apparently did not want to feel like a hack like that was the only thing that he could do and so he <laughs> he did, was determined to give himself a challenge and do this without dialogue yeah the two stories and these are compatible stories stories i think is is that he wanted to do the the episode without a reliance on his own skill with dialogue Mm -hmm. and he wanted to do an episode that was genuinely frightening yeah that he felt that buffy hadn't been frightening in a long time yeah if ever and that he wanted to really push push the boundary there but what i love about that approach though and this is of course one of the reasons why i'm such a huge joss whedon fan is that in all of those interviews whenever he talked about it it was never oh i'll show you you know, what I can do. It was never about that. It was always about, I'll show me that I can do it. And that I have to tell you is the difference between, you know, somebody who is, doing a thing to show off and somebody who is doing a thing to do the thing. And and when I talk to my students about how important it is that you focus on the work, that you make everything about the work, and yeah. every writer should always focus on the work, that's exactly the kind of focus that I'm talking about, is that it's not about, I'll show you, you don't tell me what's good about me, exactly. I'll show you. Exactly. It's not about that. It's about wanting to know what he was capable of doing and giving himself a challenge, you know, because for somebody with that kind of talent, after a while, you get a little bored, you know, no, and you want to do something. Putting the work first really is and what And that's why his Whedon. work has been so good. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just startling stuff. Mm-hmm. And then this scene is this completely unnecessary scene. Uh, yeah, this, this is a Wiccan perfect group, sure. representation of that. Yeah. Willow isn't engaged by the bureaucratic side of the group's activities and suggests that they might try, oh, I don't know, some spell casting. <laughs> and as she does, another member of the group raises her head. Okay, let's just address this right up front. All right. Her name... Yes. ...is Tara. No. Her name (laughs) is Tara. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to talk directly to the audience. You can just sit there for a minute. Here's the thing that's going on here in our household. I'm just going to open this up. Um... I have been pronouncing it Tara for years, and yeah. I think possibly it's because whenever we talk about it, you say Tara, and I just presumed that you know you remembered it better than I did because I don't remember anything properly ever. So, um, so we've been talking about this for years, and I've been calling her Tara all up until now. Whenever we mention Tara in like a spoiler zone or whatever, I always called her Tara. Um, then, uh, like a week or so ago, somebody on the forum pointed out that her name is not Tara; it's Tara, and I was like, "We've been pronouncing it wrong. I had no idea." So, as I'm watching the episode, I wait for the moment, and the girl in the Wiccan group calls her Tara and Tara does not jump to correct her so I presume that her name is Tara and that is an American pronunciation by the way just use broomstick twice in the space of one sentence 
Okay, so I appreciate that. So I'm not sure that, that I'm going to take any cues from her. I no, appreciate here's that. A, you're absolutely right. It's an American pronunciation thing. Yes. There is a transatlantic difference here. To my ear, unless I'm paying like very strict attention, when you say Tara, it sounds like Tara. You hear Tara. I, I, I transliterate it in my head. And we had this discussion. Tara. And, and I know you were joking the word around. Tara makes me feel <laughs> horrifyingly self conscious and uncomfortable. <laughs> so I can completely concede. That and her name is Tara, and we know that Whedon himself has been Whedon himself has come out point. and said that her name is Tara. But here's the thing: Giles, yes. Anthony Stewart Head, <laughs> pronounces it Tara. This is my loophole, and I think that your Britishness gets you a pass. I will call her Tara and pronounce it properly, with respect for the person whose name it was. The character whose name well, okay, it was. yes, but still, when somebody, character choose. or real person, comes to you and says, "This is how you pronounce my name," then you pronounce it that way. Well, okay, I don't want to be out on the fringes of literary theory here, but I could choose to invoke death of the author you and thereby cannot. say that everyone in the Buffyverse is mispronouncing her name, and she's just and been she's too just shy. Too polite that's to what I'm saying. Them. I don't believe that for a moment. I don't, <laughs> I don't think that's consistent <laughs> with her character. No, um, I'm completely fine with her yes. name being Tara. Yeah. But this is the problem. Every time I say that, I have to take a beat before it. Right. And that's going to become really repetitive in the framework of the podcast. You so get I a am pass. probably going you to skew towards You can call her Tara. Tara. I will try to be correct in pronunciation and call her to Tara. Work. And uh, and we'll let it go. So everybody out there who has been cringing at the way we pronounce, we're going to split the difference. He gets a pass because he's British. Right. And the trade-off is, and of Anthony course, that Stewart from now Head on, gets a pass because I will be British. referring to Baffy Summers. <laughs> I think it's only fair. I think it's only appropriate. <laughs> so this is the moment of our introduction to Tara. She tries to speak in support of Willow. And when the attention of the group is turned upon her, she collapses into silence. And oh, my God, how delightful is Amber Benson. Oh, my God. How immediately present and vulnerable vulnerable sophisticated (laughs) i know there's a drinking game that every time we say vulnerable people have to drink so you're going to get drunk when we talk about when people understand that it is the most important thing about characterization then we'll stop having to talk about it all the time we do need to talk about it because it is the most interesting thing in building characters and then and tara's vulnerability and and the way that she looks at willow in this moment you know and sees somebody who is like her um, I, I love that. And that's it. It's that core vulnerability. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. brought forth. Yeah. It's it's so rare that the mm-hmm. first thing you see of a character is yeah. her vulnerability. And without saying anything except yeah. that she can't really speak up in the group. Um and she has this this stutter that we see in the beginning. So um strong. it is unbelievable. Yeah. Of all the introductions of new characters that we get mm-hmm. through Buffy. This, I think, is far and away my favorite. Well, maybe my second favorite, but one other character who appears at the beginning of season five has, you know, a really unfair advantage in that regard. (laughs) But in terms of general character introductions, Mm -hmm. I'm hard pushed to think of a better example than this. Uh, Yeah. And this is one of those characters who is right there in the first moment that we don't have to work too hard. As much as I love Xander, when Xander first appeared on screen, they worked that dough really hard. Well, and you, you know, have to in the to context of a Xander pilot because it. you're sure introducing you 15 sure characters you do, all at once. And you're doing all of this stuff. But this, Tara is just there. But She's compared just to present. Compared yeah. Oz or even sure. Spike, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. Uh, compared to, you know, Veruca. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. I think this is a really accomplished introduction. I, I absolutely And love again, it. another example. Mm-hmm. 
this episode is not about her. Yeah. This episode mm-hmm. is not about introducing this new character. That's something we're doing off in the periphery, and that's fine, and that's right. the way it should be. So let's just make it, you know, perfect. Yes, exactly. <laughs> let's just do this completely unimportant thing spectacularly well. It's like we? somebody getting out of the car after they go grocery shopping and doing a backflip. You know, it's like you don't need to do that. No, you know? but You're it's just damn impressive off. when you do. It sure is. And I'm glad to see it. Later, Willow complains about the group to Buffy. Buffy, at this point, as we mentioned, super supportive about Willow's misadventures with magic no mention at all of the events of something blue i guess we're good with willow being the spell girl buffy feels bad that she and riley still aren't connecting and beneath the campus in the initiative base riley is feeling the same thing forest is a delight as always and it turns out that riley really thinks that buffy is special oh god well no riley actually doesn't bother me it's forest no forest remains the worst human being forest is terrible Riley's so great. Yeah. Riley, I'm stunned that here we are 10 episodes in and I'm still really enjoying, not enjoying by the standard I expected to, but genuinely glad that Riley is in the show. I genuinely like him. This, of course, is oftentimes Mm -hmm. pointed at as the turning point in Riley's character. So it's going to be interesting to see how we push on from here. Possibly, yeah. But I, I think he's a great presence to the show and is... He's not interacting a great deal with mm-hmm. our supporting cast, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But just his presence mm-hmm. broadens the world and makes it a more interesting place, which, yeah. you know, for a corn-fed guy from Iowa, there you it's go. quite the accomplishment. <laughs> so he's working for you still? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, and I like him. I'm surprised every week by how much I like him. He's, he's just lighter on his feet yeah. than I remember him yeah. being. I remember... Previously, him being very much like Scott Hope, very much like Parker Abrams, mm-hmm. always with the, you know, perfectly crafted line, always with the yeah. enormous presence and intensity. Mm-hmm. And he has none of that, yeah. which is remarkable for a guy of his, as we've said before, size and like, I don't know, physical characteristic, yeah, whatever crazy that good looks is. and all of that. Like yeah. there's just this this quality to him. Because <laughs> the thing is that a guy who looks like Mark Lucas, you know, because I mean, no matter what you feel about Riley, I don't think you can deny that he is a classic like poster boy of, of you know, attractiveness oh, and hero good looks. Type. Yeah, no, yeah he's, he's, he's leading so, that material. He's and so classically good looking. Far yeah. and away, the most traditionally you know, square-jawed hero type that we've seen on Buffy today. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, he's got all of that kind of corn-fed Superman sort of thing, exactly. you know, going on. And that usually make makes these Superman, characters actually. a little, he would, uh, a little less likable because they're just so freaking perfect. Sure. But he still manages to get across this this really sweet vulnerability. And again, go ahead, drink. Um, Because I think that that's the core of what makes him work is that he... He genuinely, like, is a good guy. Yeah. You know, he's not being a good guy because that's what he's supposed to be. He is genuinely that person. Yeah, there and really And I think that that really works. There really isn't a sense of artifice there. No, there? at all. Yeah. Yeah, that might be his great redemption, actually, is the yeah. fact that if we sensed for a moment... You know, primed oh, right. as we are to recognize that kind of, that inauthenticity. And he's exactly the cleft chin type of hero that I usually just hate. The as goody goody. listeners will yes, know, exactly. you hate good guys. <laughs> In Xander's basement, meanwhile, Spike torments him by mimicking Anya, which is just dirty pool. That's just unfair <laughs> at the best of times. We cut from there to Giles's place, where he's distracted from his research into the gentleman by the arrival of Olivia, last seen in The Freshman, who apparently picked up a big bag of smooches while she was passing through duty free. <laughs> Giles having a really good night, I think. Giles is having a good night. I like 
Giles having an adult relationship with a human woman. I do too. Um, I wish that we had more of Olivia. She's suddenly very present in this episode. And she Mm -hmm. was, of course, back in the freshman, but we only caught a glimpse of her. We caught her for just a few moments, yeah. This might as well be her debut. Yeah, and unfortunately, we don't get as much of her or as strong a sense of her as we do, like in in all the screen time that Olivia has, which I think is probably comparable to about the amount of screen time that Tara gets. Um, We don't get nearly as much a sense of her. I actually quite like her. Like I, I, I want to I want more from that character. I want yeah. Giles Paramore to be somebody who is interesting and you know, and gritty want... and, and we don't get enough of a sense of her. She seems to just be there to give us an added sense of peril. I think that's exactly you know? it. And a little bit of dimensionality and an excuse to you know yeah. send Spike to off. To send Spike off Xander. to stay with Xander, yeah. I feel as though we had this discussion back in the freshman, mm-hmm. but while I want to like her, I feel as though her defining characteristic right now is simply the fact that she's just strikingly beautiful. She is. And I want for Giles yeah. more than that. Yeah. There's also a weird piece of discontinuity here where in the freshman she refers to Giles as Ripper. Uh-huh. She's playful with that. So and she obviously end, knows his history and well, his background. Yeah. Unless the only kind of compromise position I can think of is that. She knows that Giles' name is Ripper, but doesn't know anything about the realm of supernatural forces that he's involved with. Well, and as we find out later, she does. He did tell her, but she didn't believe him. But that you makes know? it sound as though Giles has just been bragging about his misspent youth. Which and I'm, doesn't seem like this Giles. Is the problem. Yeah. From what we get of Olivia, right. that seems out of character. We don't get a sense of this relationship or yeah. how it would work. And I really feel like Giles... I, I get the feeling like they're old friends. They've been friends for a long time. She's known him for a long time. If she's known him that long, I think that she would know him better. You would hope it so. It seems. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It, it feels like a, a missed opportunity. Olivia, I think, is just a missed opportunity. Again, yeah. but this is it. When you're criticizing this episode, she's good enough. She does what she she's is. supposed to do. She is. And, you know, she serves her function in the movement of the plot. But, yeah, yeah she's not mm-hmm. She's not staggeringly impressive. Yeah, and it's a shame. And that seems you know, by comparison, to be Mm -hmm. something of an imperfection. In a clock tower, somewhere in Sunnydale, a box is opened and wisps of mist escape the mouths of the sleeping good folk of the town, including our slayer. The mist collects in the box, which is finally closed by the smiling demon that we saw earlier. That is the end of Act 1. Yeah. We are 14 minutes into our episode of Buffy and a half hour into our podcast. Is there a valid criticism of Hush? that it simply takes too long to get started, that we simply feel the need to introduce too many new elements into a story that would be better served by a tighter focus on the monster of the week. Could we improve this story by cutting Olivia, and as painful as it might be, cutting Tara, Tara, not Tara. Tara. Good for One you. One couldn't cut Tara, no. clearly. <laughs> Actually, I would disagree with that. I think we open with the gentleman. We have the threat looming over the entire first act. So we know that something creepy is coming. Um, We do have information. She knows that they're called the gentleman. We start asking around. We get a little bit of that. Um, So we do get a sense that there is something pressing that is going to happen. But I feel like the first act, as we're moving through it, sets everything up really nicely like a bunch of dominoes. And then they're all going to go down throughout the rest of the episode and that's the unique challenge that Mm -hmm. faces this story is that you have to have 
all of your major relationships primed yeah. and ready to go by the end of the first act because you can only advance yeah. the individual plots mm -hmm. you know through action and gesture yeah. you don't get dialogue so the amount that you can move a plot and the amount to which you can force a plot to deviate from its original trajectory mm -hmm. is severely curtailed i'm not sure that it is I'm not sure that it is. I think that you can't rely on your dialogue, which a lot of writers do, uh, you know, very much rely on dialogue. But there is actually a lot of of subtlety and communication that you can do through simple action. There is, but that action has to be, for the purposes of television, unambiguous. We have to oh, yeah. be able to track mm -hmm. those changes. Right. And we don't, I'm trying to think, but we don't, deviate from the expected trajectories i suppose the closest we get is with xander and anya mm -hmm. um but even then we get this you know a little bit of performance theater from yes. spike <laughs> in order to, to bring us to the point that we need to be we have right. to mm -hmm. we have to really pour a great deal of effort and attention into that to move what is a fairly simple plot mm -hmm. incrementally forward yeah. i think that you have to work harder if you're not going to have dialogue in i your think you have to anymore. work a different muscle and I uh, think that perhaps, sometimes that's perhaps. a little bit difficult. But a but different you muscle, do it, yeah. too, for the viewer. Yes, absolutely. Because we're unaccustomed. Absolutely. And I love yeah. that there's no, I love that there's no temptation to subtitle the yes. unvoiced expressions that yes. we had. I feel mm -hmm. like too many shows would, would compromise in exactly that mm -hmm. way. The more that you are just willing to let that action stand, mm -hmm. the more you are willing to trust your audience, the more rewarding it is. As an experience, yes. and, you know, as the viewer, the, the more engaged you are mm -hmm. by what's unfolding. So absolutely. I mm -hmm. absolutely admire not just the accomplishment, not just the scale of the accomplishment of this episode, but also in weird ways, the restraint that this episode shows. And the confidence. Yeah. I, I like the fact that it's written with security. When, in, when a writer is insecure, it's the worst because uh, they end up over explaining and overworking it and overdoing it and showing off and jazz handing their way through it you know and here we have gentle quiet confidence <laughs> with some jazz hands <laughs> okay all right but not this, just this episode not certified jazz hand free. exactly no but here's the thing there's a difference between jazz handing in a moment where you've got everything you've got it all it's all happening and then there's jazz handing that's just like hey look at this and forget how bad everything else exactly is exactly right there's like yeah. a celebratory showing off that yes. when you're at the top of your game is like an acknowledgement of the fact that you're fantastic exactly and there are times a, when jazz hands are appropriate sure, sure. Uh, because the counterpoint to that too often is the distracting jazz hands where we'll throw in some spectacle exactly because we know because we don't have anything yeah. else exactly mm -hmm. the next morning this is actually one of my favorite sequences in the episode one of the most understated sequences but it speaks to a great tradition in visual storytelling mm -hmm. this kind of um post-apocalyptic epiphany scene mm -hmm. it makes me think of the scene in Shaun of the dead oh yeah when Shaun mm -hmm. crosses the street after the zombie apocalypse has broken out <laughs> he crosses the street hungover and oblivious mm -hmm. goes through the same set of motions that he went through the previous yes. day mm -hmm. and we can see Exactly. That all is not well, but he remains oblivious until mm -hmm. that final moment of epiphany. That is, if there isn't a page on TV Tropes called the post-apocalypse epiphany, <laughs> there probably should be. Yep, go ahead and put that in there. I believe it works like Wikipedia, right? Anybody as can go into right? it. Yeah, go put the post-apocalyptic epiphany in there, yes. So this is Buffy waking, going to the bathroom to brush her teeth. When she emerges, she passes a distraught girl in the hall. She returns to her room. We get Sleepy Willow waking up. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, Sleepy Willow is the most willow yeah it feels like that's a willow we haven't seen in a long mm -hmm. time and i don't know if if 
it's just the quality of the performance. I don't know if it's the quality of the intent that so often lately we've seen Willow in a state of, yeah. you know, emotional distress. And this is Willow right. literally and, and figuratively at rest. Yes. Mm-hmm. It just feels like, I don't know, Whedon's take on Willow is as ever slightly different. And always better. I, I, I think Whedon's so. Willow is my favorite Willow. I think so. <laughs> I like what Martin Oxen does with Willow. I like it too, yeah. But mm-hmm. that Willow is is sharper. Mm-hmm. And there's a... There's a genuine, I don't know, gooeyness yes. to Whedon's Willow. Well, what I that love, doesn't in any way undercut her intelligence exactly. or her no, capability. But in this moment, like I think there's this quick moment where you know Buffy's trying to talk and she just realizes something's wrong with her voice. Yes, Willow instantly thinks she's gone deaf. Yes. Willow instantly thinks that the fault is within her as opposed to external to her. And I think that that is such an interesting take on character and what that means that that's the conclusion that she would jump to between. That the beat that we mentioned back in the mm-hmm. in the cold open about Willow spying on Buffy yes. and Riley, and of mm-hmm. course Willow's uh, eager hand in the air, you know, yes. gets to be a student <laughs> under Giles again. Enthusiasm oh, later so in the sweet, episode. Yeah. Uh, this is yeah, this is my favorite Willow. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely my favorite Willow. Are there any of the other staff writers on Buffy who give us versions of the characters that we prefer over Whedon's versions? Are Whedon's versions always definitive? Oh gosh, you know. I don't know, but I'm going to keep an eye out for that as we move. That's a very difficult question to answer, I guess. The one that springs to mind immediately is possibly Jane Espenson's Xander. Yeah, Yeah, no, I was just thinking about that. Mm -hmm. I think that might be... Yeah, I like I like Jane Espenson's take on Xander. I like I feel like the Xander who is the emotional heart rather than the goofball. I feel like Whedon writes Xander as a goofball, and in in some you know, and again, it's extra textual, and it's it shouldn't matter because death of the author and whatever. But I believe I've read in an interview where that, he he saw Xander yes, as himself. Xander is self insertion fan fiction. <laughs> exactly. So I feel like for him, Xander is all about the funny and the goofy, whereas some other writers have been really able to bring out Xander's heart and emotional connection. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is really his strongest It's definitely something point. that we'll continue yeah. to, to track as we move through the rest of Buffy. Mm-hmm. So Buffy and Willow try to speak but can't and realization slowly dawns that something is wrong. Out in the hall, things are just the same and in Xander's basement where Xander first tries to call Buffy then realizes the flaw inherent in the plan. <laughs> we also get, of course, that famous shot of Spike. Yes. With the... Uh, with the two-fingered the salute. The raised now, V sign. Okay, now that is something that is actually a, a foul gesture in the UK, right? Yes, I mean, is it, is it uh, like our middle finger? Yes, absolutely yeah. the equivalent, particularly for Spike. I think that the single mm-hmm. raised middle digit yes. has kind of eclipsed Mm-hmm. The the raised V sign. Yeah. Uh, oh, even in in British culture. I think now do you guys, it do you guys has. flip the flip the bird more. Yeah, I think now over mm-hmm. the course of maybe the last you know decade okay. or two. Mm-hmm. But for Spike's frame of reference, yes, yes, he is absolutely flipping Xander off. That is it. It is completely unambiguous. It is every bit as coarse. <laughs> yes, is it <laughs> as a raised middle finger? And it's one of the number of gestures. Yes. That I'm slightly surprised managed to slip past standards oh, and practices. My God, the gestures in this. I cannot believe. Well, actually, I can because the censors read the script. They don't see it. When they approve it, they approve it from reading the script. And if in the script, they just skim over the action and look at the dialogue and, you know, um, it is entirely possible that they just didn't realize what they were approving, which is 
amazing and wonderful, and I love it. <laughs> it is though the fact that that gesture does make it to the title sequence. Oh of yeah, the well, because in America that doesn't have yeah. the meaning that it has <laughs> in the UK. Um, but I love that it's it's every bit as you know as crude as the middle finger is, oh, is no. considered and to very be in true America. To the yeah. I love it. Yeah. And the initiative house Riley, Forrest, and the others are also effective, but they've apparently forgotten the conspicuous vocal code requirement we saw earlier. Forrest seems to think that while they're trapped in the elevator writing come on come on in his little holly hunter in the piano notepad will be helpful see i thought of it as him singing come on come on do the locomotion i thought it was just being playful he was your theory here is that forrest had some kind of psychotic break because he could no longer be a wise ass well (laughs) i can't verbalize the fact that i'm the worst human being so i have to find some other way of doing it yeah no there's no excuse for it it's terrible yeah but what I really like is Riley's capability. I like uh-huh. how on it he is. Sure. I, I clearly think he should have remembered the fact that they need a vocal code. Well, yeah, but and you don't think when, about it. You don't think about your voice out, not being there. Yeah. When they get out of the elevator uh-huh. and Professor Walsh is like... She points to the sign. In case of emergency, use stairs. It is all that the soundtrack can do to yes. restrain itself from a rim shot or a sad uh, trombone. Uh, no, it's a great, great moment. And I also love the fact that they put the vocal code in a few episodes ago. Yeah. It's a nice little plant. It's right yeah. at the beginning of this episode, though you breeze past it so fast yeah. that you might not even notice mm-hmm. it. It it works really yeah. quite nicely. I like yes. it. I, I completely admire mm-hmm. the soundtrack for not having wah, wah, right at the end of that sequence. In the student center, Tar- finds the other students silent and distraught the silence punctuated suddenly by shattering glass and this is such a weird beat for me because yeah. when remembering hush yeah i had somehow fabricated this screen memory yeah that it was jonathan who drops the bottle right jonathan who we haven't seen but since, it isn't uh, season three that's not jonathan that's not jonathan no it's so weird. I would have said, gun to my head, that that was Jonathan <laughs> who drops the bottle, but it's not. So there we go. Buffy and Willow, meanwhile, wander past the espresso pump, the inevitable religious gathering, and an enterprising fellow selling whiteboards. Because <laughs> you can always rely on the small businessman of America to make the most of any catastrophe. I love, I love the look of abject disgust on their faces. And then they walk into Giles with the whiteboards love around it. their necks. It's wonderful. Love it. Yeah. At Giles's, the group is glad to be reunited. Has there ever been a more authentically touching moment than hi, Giles? Oh, oh my God. And when Giles goes and gives her that little hug, it is so sweet. I mean, I loved when Buffy walked in and he touches Buffy and there's this sweet moment between them. But God, there's something about Giles and Willow too. That relationship is is so beautiful. Hi, Giles. It's the greatest thing. I just love it. They watch at that point a TV news report about the town being quarantined by the CDC. This is around the point at which someone somewhere should have remembered that Buffy's mother lives in Sunnydale. (laughs) I guess she's still on that trip that took her away over Thanksgiving. Over Thanksgiving, extended shore leave. It's only been a month. I mean, that's basically a weekend away for Joyce, right? (laughs) Well, hopefully she's at a spa, you know, up in San Francisco or something. Yeah. It's just fun. that. that Well, we could have had something, just a little something saying that Joyce was out of town so that at least we don't have to worry about Joyce because nobody goes to check on Joyce. Or, Mm -hmm. and this would be my pitch, get Christine Sutherland in the show. Yeah. Basically have her fulfill the Olivia role. Uh, Not necessarily, she doesn't need to be sleeping with Giles. Oh, but that would be nice. That relationship explored. 
I love Joyce and But Doris, if she yeah. were present, this yeah. is a character we're already connected to, and it's a relationship we're already invested in. Exactly, exactly. And also, I felt kind of bad for Olivia. Olivia's just sitting there. She has no voice. There's all these young <laughs> no kids introduces her. hanging out with her and her <laughs> middle-aged boyfriend, and they're watching TV, not to mention one of them's a vampire. So, I mean, like, the whole thing is just crazy. And I felt so bad for her, because, like, I've been in, you know, some really awkward social situations in my life but i think that olivia has got me beat by a mile that one is definitely going to take the the british biscuit oh, in this sense. buffy yeah. realizes that this is going to be a bad night for the town of sunnydale and decides to patrol riley and the other agents meanwhile are being briefed by a voice only marginally more robotic than walsh's <laughs> usual that night buffy sees riley break up a fight and send the guys on their way and intervenes casually to prevent some escalation and she and riley hug Riley just intervening in that moment is a great kind of, you're right, this is Mm -hmm. a force for good Superman kind of moment. But a genuine, this is the thing, it's so genuine. It's not, and again, it's like Joss, right? It's not about I'll show you, it's about this is who I am, you know, and I really like that. It's great, Mm -hmm. and the unnecessary complication again Mm -hmm. of of Buffy casually breaking the guy's hand to force him to drop the pipe. (laughs) She breaks his wrist. I mean, she it has, certainly looks human. like she breaks his she wrist. She has superhuman powers. Yeah. Like, yeah. There are times when we will whistle past Buffy using her Slayer powers on human on beings. On humans, yes. When the joke is good enough. When, if the joke <laughs> is good enough, you get a pass. Well, I think if you're going to yeah. raise a, mm-hmm. a you know lead pipe and 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 you know, well, you're you're asking for it. Yeah, yeah, this is this is and a, she has a to make sure he's out of uh, out of commission to exactly. do that sort of thing till this is over. Yeah. And this is the moment when Buffy and Riley finally kiss a real kiss and the soundtrack swells and we get the Buffy oh, Riley theme. The Buffy Riley theme. It's a very nice Which moment. is nice and doesn't break my heart the way that Close Your Eyes does. <laughs> it's nice that they didn't decide to reuse that. It's nice that they didn't decide oh, to reuse that just as the Buffy If they had reused theme. that, are you kidding me? People would you have would risen up. There would have been, you think this is panic in the streets. It's yeah. no coincidence though that if you had asked me prior to watching the show, in fact, if you asked me now, yeah. how does the Buffy Riley love theme go? I'm not <laughs> sure that I could hum it or tell you. I'm not sure that I could recognize it, actually. It's yeah. not as powerful a piece of music. No, it can't be. Close Your Eyes is, is one of those very rare moments that you cannot replicate. Right. And they shouldn't try for Riley. But yeah. this theme is also debuting in an episode that has, just across the board, outstanding. Oh. Standing original composition. Christoph Beck, who is the yeah. the music guy. I can't believe we've gone this far into without, the without talking about yes, Christoph yes, Beck, yes. who we will talk about a lot throughout the run of Buffy. Um, his work doing the the soundtrack for Buffy is unbelievable and he was you know told that he was going to have to carry you know the audio for most of this episode Mm. and completely stepped up to the plate and built just wonderful yeah i can't i can't imagine how much original composition was actually required um yeah there are very few deviations um Mm -hmm. from that that orchestral arrangement that that classic Mm -hmm. you know buffy style uh musical accompaniment that we get but he must have put together in excess of a half hour of original material for this episode which is a startling amount for yeah i mean for a guy who's just you know working on this show doing i mean doing the standard supportive work to be uh, like up front like that you know to have the musical choices up front like that and when we get to giles's presentation in the oh my god ah the dance macabre oh yeah yes we will we'll, we'll talk we'll about that talk about that when we get there at the clock tower meanwhile the smiling demons drift eerily out of the door accompanied by their flailing straight jacketed 
Yeah, I'm just going to say Igors. Igors. Well, they're Igors called, seems they're to be called footmen. Apparently, the, the accepted term for them is footmen. And when that they I were going for a class though, thing, like a British classic class sure. thing. Yeah. But mm-hmm. when you've got flailing straight jacket. Oh, sure. That's a, that's oh, a clear sure. reference. It is very and Igor. Speaks yeah. to, you know, mm-hmm. th- there's a there's a vampiric resonance. They're sure. in the fairy tale sense mm-hmm. rather than the Buffy sense, yes. I guess. It's a striking visual. And Perhaps nothing in the show is as unsettling mm-hmm. as this floating drift, this stately oh. procession. It's and so beautifully, beautifully done. done, so beautifully done, and they look wonderful. And the the whole makeup, everything for the gentlemen and yeah. their their whole visual look. Um, and just so you guys know, on Wednesday we are going to be doing an episode of the light bulb that addresses the Slenderman uh, myth yes. because there's so much to talk about. It will be a whole other episode. Uh, but all of you who are not currently listening to the light bulb, come back on Wednesday, sign up, uh, subscribe to the light bulb. It's available everywhere you get your podcasts and. Uh, and we'll be talking about the Slenderman myth because uh, the gentlemen are absolutely part of that uh, kind of the oh, ground that, that they they sprang yeah, from. Yeah, this modern yeah. horror myth. It's yeah. it's a really interesting uh, it's a really interesting and take. The and visuals are just beautiful. The gentlemen themselves, of course, present a deceptively complicated aesthetic. Mm-hmm. We think of them as being these simple, you know, smiling, right. grinning, mm-hmm. bald headed demons with these odd, stately, quirky, Mm -hmm. inhuman movements. But there are more sophisticated Mm -hmm. references. And perhaps the central thesis of the episode can be found in something that we are inclined, I think, to overlook. It makes purposeful and explicit references to Victorian England. Mm -hmm. It makes specific reference to, you know, the days of the amateur doctor slash surgeon. Mm -hmm. And we're obviously looking, too, at the straight-jacketed footmen, the Mm -hmm. the Igor-like servants and their And the industrial sense of the the metal teeth and the very mechanical um, essence. When you're in the clock tower with them, there is that kind of, not quite steampunk, but almost feel to everything. No, the clock tower is perfect, right? The clock tower, the whole thing, the gears, and and the whole physicality, the 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 really as much as they float they're anchored in this very creepy physicality yeah and almost effete mm-hmm. physicality yes. you know we have mm-hmm. the, the gentle applause that yes. we'll get to later and uh-huh. these very expressive and fluid movements albeit yes in human mm-hmm. movements but you're right that's anchored in a kind of industrial physicality mm-hmm. that's all the more you know unsettling disturbing it it speaks to this kind of very blunt and crude body horror oh it's as a visual it is so incredibly beautiful and evocative but the most striking thing about them of course is the smile and the smile is disturbing in the first place of course because we are keyed biologically to be sensitive to such things this Mm -hmm. is an insincere smile and that reads as a threat but more interestingly i think we're looking at a language of expression and mm-hmm. vulnerability. Professor Walsh at the beginning of the episode is talking about, or one of the things that Professor Walsh is talking about at the beginning of the episode, is the inadequacy of, you know, verbal language yeah. to communicate. Then the rest of the episode is about communicating in gestures. It's about the mobility and the expressiveness of the human body. And here we have these characters who seem to be, on the one hand, very fluidly expressive, but mm-hmm. on the other, fixed. There's absolutely no means of accessing an interior humanity mm-hmm. through yeah. these fixed grins. Yeah, no, it's incredibly beautiful. And I mean, the the guys who are doing it 
have this. The, there's the two front guys who yeah. have the actual grins, and the other guys in the back, you can tell the grin was put over their mouth because who could hold that all yeah. day long? I mean, that is, <laughs> I can't even imagine how much their faces must have hurt after the end of a day of filming that. Yeah, you'd want some kind of hazard pay. Oh, God. After that. I can't even imagine. Yeah. So we cut back to Olivia. She slips out of Giles's bed and puts on a robe downstairs. She hears a sound and peers outside. She sees one of the gentlemen floating across the street and then another up close you have that three-quarter oh, turn that is the creepiest the moment that's that's the moment i've never i mean i've never been particularly afraid in any episode of buffy um i've this is the first moment when i was watching it originally where i actually jumped and was like oh you know like i mean yeah. and that doesn't happen to me a lot first of all because i don't typically watch scary things anyway but usually the scary and the horror tend toward the gross rather than the truly startling. That's definitely true, yes. I think that this works so beautifully as as a demonstration of misdirection. Oh, yeah. Because the gentleman that we see across the street is so small and so indistinct that Uh we ourselves, as Olivia is, we are encouraged to peer closer. Yes. We are drawn in by it. Oh. And then that is And then there's one rewarded. right there. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. No, that it's is one of the best. Fantastic. And for this poor actress who plays Olivia and never comes back again because we never <laughs> see her again to get that moment at least with all the awkwardness and her character not being, you know, written really with any kind of depth or, or what we would like to see in that character, sure. especially in a character who is sleeping with Giles. Um but to not have that but at least they gave her this you know incredibly like epic moment in all of Buffy this is one of the great Buffy moments <laughs> and uh, and she did that very well but if it had been Joyce if it had been Joyce I know <laughs> other gentlemen drift through the halls of Buffy's dorm communicating with expressive gestures they choose a door and knock on it inside a boy gets out of bed sees them and is restrained by the Igors while the gentlemen approach and draw forth a scalpel from their satchel, we hear the sounds of the first incision, and back in the clock tower, a heart and a glass jar joins two more, while the gentlemen politely applaud. Mm-hmm. An unbelievably disquieting and gross oh, God. sequence. Uh, so beautifully so done. Beautifully so realized, yeah. In the dorm, Buffy slips unseen into the crime scene. Giles, meanwhile, finds that the Sunnydale Press and their infernal machines are still working. <laughs> Olivia has drawn the image of the gentleman that she saw, and Giles urgently pulls a fairy tale book from the shelf. In the lecture theater, he begins his presentation, accompanied, as we said, by the Danse Macabre mm-hmm. by Camille Sanson. Mm-hmm. This is a great sequence and displays such a mature understanding of the beats and tropes of Buffy mm-hmm. because it plays out exactly as this scene plays out in any other episode of Buffy. Yes. Exactly. This is our. We all gather together, we figure out what's right. going on, Giles gives the speech. <laughs> Xander is, you know, inappropriately yes. funny. Is goofy, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's fantastic and played so beautifully. Oh yeah. Let's talk about the music though, because you right. know the reference. That I this music do, makes. I do. This is a piece of music that was written in 1874, mm-hmm. um, and it was basically a companion piece to a poem that was about this French uh, superstition that on Halloween night at midnight, death would come out, play his fiddle, and all the dead would rise and dance around him until the sun rose again. Um, so there's this wonderful, like the the you get the feeling of the footman. You can feel kind of mm-hmm. that 
that that dancing and that manipulation, you know, yeah. going on in the background. And so it's a wonderful piece of music with a history and an association that we don't directly look at. But anybody no. who wants to dig deeper, it's right there. It's also a piece of music that for the British viewer might have an extra additional connotation. Oh, really? Because that piece of music, The Dance Macabre, is used as the title song for the TV show Jonathan Creek, a series of strange and off-kilter mysteries, the pilot of which featured Anthony Hatt. (gasps) Well, okay, now I have to watch that. I hope it's on Netflix. Jonathan Creek is fantastic. I have no (laughs) idea at all if it's on Netflix. It is a great series. They made, I don't know, 30 episodes over about a decade because, you know, British television. British television, yes. Um, It's it's really good. It's basically a series of incredibly elaborate locked room mysteries. Oh, wow. uh, That is solved by a guy who creates magic tricks for Mm -hmm. a living, Uh but does not believe in magic tricks. So it's all about these key ideas of misdirection mm-hmm. and, and unexpected uh, composition and opposition. It's it's a really great series. Oh, um, wonderful. And yeah, Anthony Head is only, unfortunately, in the pilot. That's enough. Uh, which was shot yeah. in 1997, so it makes me think that maybe he shot that before oh, and then Buffy, Buffy was picked up yeah. properly. Mm-hmm. Um, so unfortunately, he his part is recast Aww. when the, the show goes to series, but... <laughs> uh, but still worth watching the pilot. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so that's a little association for British viewers. Giles explains, alongside some comedic mime, that the gentlemen are fairy tales and that they want hearts. They silence a town, then harvest the seven hearts they need. Only a real human voice can kill them, the scream of a princess. But, well, that's the problem. Buffy will patrol, the others will research, and we cut two to the initiative gearing up. Mm-hmm. The lecture scene? I love the lecture scene. Okay. So the two <laughs> conspicuous parts of the lecture scene. Yes. The boobies joke. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then what we'll call the staking gesture. Sure. What <laughs> <laughs> we'll charitably describe as the staking gesture. Right. Which of those works better for you? Um, I like them both. Yeah? I think they're both funny. I think the staking gesture obviously is much more shocking than the boobs one, so it tends to stand out. Um. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little less happy with the staking gesture yeah. because Giles seems to be complicit in it, and I'm not sure that that's the association that he would make. <laughs> um, well, no, I think pretty much anybody looks at that gesture, that's what they're going to think. Uh, perhaps. Giles is a man. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Giles is the man. Exactly. <laughs> it's a great scene. Anya eating yeah. popcorn, of course. Just oh, yeah. And the grosser it gets, delighted. the more yes. she you know, pops the popcorn. Very, this is good cute. Anya in this yeah. episode, I should no, say. I like uh, to yeah. speak up in her defense. She's, she's really sidelined by the movement of the plot. Mm-hmm. But uh, she's... But where she is, great. she's good. She's yeah. fun. Yeah. yeah. Buffy walks the streets while openly carrying a crossbow. Right. Which seems like, you know, plausible deniability is usually the Slayer's friend. But here, no, she's all armed and that's it. Riley sees movement within the clock tower and goes to investigate. Tara, meanwhile, has Willow's name. Tara, meanwhile, has Willow's name and address and hurries across campus with a bundle of books. Though when she trips, we see in the background the eerie approach of the gentlemen and their servants. Mm -hmm. If the scene of Olivia looking out the window is the best horror beat Mm -hmm. in the episode... This is far and away the second best yes. horror beat in the uh-huh. episode. The way that they're out of focus in the mm-hmm. back of the shot. Yeah. But we know, of course, and the well, movements and the are so distinctive. Too, like yeah. from the footmen, you have that clanging yeah. from the ends of their straight jackets. And I love that very, very subtle, you know, audio element in the background, but it's one of the things that you hear in the background even when they're not in the shot. And it's so wonderfully evocative. It I is. love that. It is. And, and a great part of the sound design yeah. because as much as we can celebrate 
the music, mm-hmm. the sound design in general deserves nothing but, but oh, applause God. and approbation. Amazing, yeah. Yeah. Across town, Buffy also sees one of the gentlemen and is attacked by a servant. Tara bangs on the dorm room doors as the gentlemen approach. Buffy kills one of the servants. We cut to Riley. He's also being attacked by an Igor mm-hmm. in the clock tower. We're moving back and forth. We're frantically cutting. It's really beautifully put yeah. together. Then we have what some have construed as a moment of unfair manipulation of the audience. Mm-hmm. Tara gets to the second floor. She bangs on the door. We cut to Willow waking up. Mm-hmm. She goes to the door. The door opens, but it's one of the gentlemen holding a fresh heart. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> Does that work for you? Is that playing fair? Um. Yeah, I think so, because we know that, that Tara's, you know, knocking on doors. We also see other students asleep in their beds, getting up but not answering the door. Um, and then when right. Willow goes, I think that Tara was down the hall from her at that she point. So was, she did but, hear some stuff. Well, here's the thing. On the yeah. one hand, it's fair mm-hmm. because... The number is on the door, and yes. that's not Buffy and Willow's yes. room number. So but that's you have fine. to you have to know yes. that. And and the thing is, we just saw it on a on a um, post it sticker right. that that Tara had that said it was two fourteen. On the other hand, mm-hmm. we shoot this hallway from the reverse angle, and because it's an incomplete hallway, we're actually right. if you watch yeah. very carefully, mm-hmm. Tara moves from door to door during the sequences. Yes. You know because we need the shot that we need, and that's exactly. fine. Mm-hmm. But we're shooting it from the reverse angle. Mm-hmm. So we're clearly leading the audience to believe. Yes. The inattentive members of the audience perhaps yes. to believe that this is Willow's room. It works well enough for mm-hmm. me. I don't know that we need that reveal at mm-hmm. that moment. The the gentleman with the heart. Yeah, yeah. That's the part of it that works least well for mm-hmm. me because the gentleman as this predatory force, this mm-hmm. unstoppable force yeah. pursuing Tara, I, I think that works really quite well. Mm-hmm. The gentleman already being in the dorm room and returning to the dorm after they already harvested one heart, that works less well for me. Well, it does seem to me like they are harvesting from young people. And and I guess you go where the goods are at, you know? Sure, but they were already there. Do they just go out, harvest one, and then come back and... I felt like... If the next victim is just down the hall, don't worry, we'll get him tomorrow night. I felt like, yeah, I felt like they were inducing maximum fear and ter- it seems to me like they enjoyed not just the gathering of the heart but the fear that they that there's a performative yeah that there's yeah. definitely that because the thing is that when he's there and he's got the heart in the jar you know that is a horrifying moment um and i feel like he's enjoying that like the moment where they look at olivia right why don't they just come in and kill olivia then they see her right why not just come in and get her i think that frightening the town and keeping the town in this heightened state of fear i think that that's part of the performance that that's what they were going for no i think you're right and that's Mm -hmm. certainly as valid a theory as any other one of the great (laughs) things about this episode is that we don't explain giles tells us that they need seven hearts do they need those hearts well there's only five gentlemen Right. I guess they got two spares just in case. <laughs> what do we need them for? What mm-hmm. is the purpose of this? But by failing to explain it, we're keeping it yeah. indistinct enough, horrifying enough that it actually fits the fairy tale mode right. rather beautifully. Yeah. Fairy tales are full of these abstract but very definite rules. Yes, you know? exactly. They will come to town and they need seven hearts. Why seven? Well, just because it's and why. And why, why hearts? What for? But exactly. it's, it's that doesn't matter, you know, yeah, because it really it's doesn't. the effect of it. Yeah. Buffy arrives at the clock tower. She and Riley dispose of the footman only to end up suddenly with weapons trained on each other. 
There's a lull in the action, a moment of recognition, and we'll be back after these messages. <laughs> this to me is one of the most impressive things about Whedon's command of the form. Mm -hmm. He wields commercial breaks yes. like they are punctuation. <laughs> it's fairly easy, fairly trivial to maintain a break over a commercial break, you know, mm -hmm. a, a, a narrative break to keep a moment suspended, to have that tiny cliffhanger over mm -hmm. the commercial break and come back to, to resolve it. He does that with a greater degree of precision and a greater degree of purpose than mm -hmm. pretty much any writer that I can think of. I think of writers like Aaron Sorkin, for sure. example, because mm -hmm. it's been a few episodes since we mentioned Aaron Sorkin here on Dusted. <laughs> He always feels, his work always feels as though it is interrupted by yeah. commercial breaks, as though they mm -hmm. are intrusive. I think there's a reason that when you're watching Buffy on Netflix, yeah. they go to some length to preserve yeah. the space there. Mm -hmm. They don't elite past it and just continue the scene. You sure. get that breath, that moment of suspension. I think it's I think it's masterful. Yeah, I mean, they use those commercial breaks to really work into the musical rhythm of the episode. Yeah, Absolutely. it's nice. Mm -hmm. It's just fantastically done. The fighting continues after the break, and we cut to Giles's place, where Spike drinks his blood from Giles's librarian mug, but some inopportune framing leaves mm -hmm. Xander under the impression that Spike has fed on Anya. Xander leaps heroically to the rescue, punching Spike until Anya wakes. The two have a moment of reconciliation. Anya has a surprisingly obscene hand gesture for <laughs> network TV. And we cut away Very to Willow and yes. Tara in the dorm laundry room. Of all the gestures in the episode, yeah. that is the one that I am amazed made it onto I TV. Know. Because there's no alternative interpretation. Yeah, you know exactly what that means. And that is an incredibly crude gesture. It's so fast. <laughs> But I wonder if its rapidity had something to do with it. No, I but think I'm that they read the startled. script and just signed off on it. And that was it. Yeah. I can't believe that no one would look at the episode. Well, I'm interested to see what the original fallout. script. Yeah. It did Joss yeah. Whedon write it in a way that was vague enough that the censors maybe didn't realize it. In the laundry room in the dorm, Willow tries to magically move the vending machine in front of the door. Tara takes her hand and they do it together. The first effective barricading in Sunnydale Thank history. <laughs> Let it ring forth from every tower and place of business that we have successfully barricaded yes. something. And begun a beautiful friendship. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty great moment. It's a great moment, yeah. At the clock tower, Buffy finds the glass jars and the gentleman. Riley buys her a moment with the aid of his frankly excessively awesome lightning gun that thing's pretty cool yeah <laughs> they fight on until buffy desperate recognizes the box from her vision she gestures urgently to riley who valiantly smashes not the box <laughs> he looks up at her like a puppy expecting a treat but on the second try smashes it properly the mist surges free and buffy screams killing the gentleman it's a great action set piece i am perhaps a little curious about the decision to relieve Buffy of her agency mm -hmm. in its closing moments and to have Riley be the one who affected the rescue. No, but he didn't, though. I mean, they were working together. She was the one who gestured to him to tell him what to do. Mm -hmm. And what I actually really like about that is that we have them coming together as a team. And as I've talked that's, about a million times, that's yeah. what makes a great romance. Yeah, that shared capability yeah, is yeah. worth a lot. I have to say that Riley smashing the little bottle. Oh, yeah. And then, <laughs> and then looking, looking up, up at her. With such pride. <laughs> that is a laugh out loud moment for yeah. me. I just love <laughs> it is a great lack moment. of self-awareness oh, yeah. in that moment. It's no, the greatest. It's and then, beautifully yes, done. Yeah. As we mentioned before, mm -hmm. you know, closing out the story with the scream. Yeah. Is, ah, is brilliant. Yeah, it's really nice. That's some profound 
textual construction. Mm -hmm. I, I absolutely adore it. The next day, Willow and Tara talk about their experiences about spellcasting and about power. Tara sees the special in Willow. Giles and Olivia talk too, discussing the new perspective that Olivia has on the horrors of the world. <laughs> and finally, Riley stops by Buffy's room, closes the door, and acknowledges that they need to talk, which they will eventually. Eventually, but they end in that lovely beat of silence. They can finally speak again, just and they just don't know sublime. what to say. It is so beautifully done. I, I just cannot express how much <laughs> I love and respect this episode. It's, it's so great. well done, yeah. We should say to clarify too that people who have already seen Buffy will know that the next episode, Doomed, picks up on that conversation. Yes. It's basically a continuation of the same shot. It is, however, a different story. Mm -hmm. And since we're trying as much as possible to stick to chronological release, yes. mm -hmm. then we're going to cover the next episode of Angel on Thursday and mm -hmm. return to Doomed next Monday. And if the viewers of Buffy in 1999 slash the year 2000 could wait a month for the yes. resolution to the scene, then you guys can wait a week. Sure. So we'll be back next Monday to look at <laughs> Doomed. It is such a confident, such an accomplished piece of work. I don't know how to properly express my admiration for it, except to say perhaps this. How many times have you seen Hush? Oh, goodness. Uh, ten? Okay. Maybe? Yeah. <laughs> so when you sat down to watch it today, uh -huh. did it frighten you? Did it engage you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You were every right minute, there. every minute, I was right there for the whole thing. Um, I this episode is one of my favorite episodes. As, as I said, not just of Buffy, but of all television everywhere. And I feel like this episode marks a sea change in the way that we view television and what we think about television. This also so. was the only you know major Emmy award that this show was ever nominated for. Yeah. Joss got a nomination for uh, for writing in a drama series, and uh, and it was tremendous. How he didn't win, I'll I'll never understand. Doesn't make any <laughs> sense to me. I don't. I actually understand mm -hmm. that from yeah. the perspective of 1999 because mm -hmm. how would you even Mm -hmm. account for this show yeah at that time you yeah. know this well, is a the, mainstream show that get, is yeah it didn't get the kind of respect that it should oh. have gotten and now of course it's spawned you know uh college classes and multiple books written about it and of course you know multiple podcasts analyzing <laughs> it um because there's so much richness there and i think that i I love this episode. I love what this episode did for Buffy, and I love what it did for television. Yeah. I feel like this is a pivotal moment in televisual history, not just in Buffy the Vampire Slayer as a series, but in television itself. I think you're entirely yeah. right. But moreover, I mm -hmm. mean, as a unit of television, as yeah. a unit of narrative, it also exhibits so many perfect examples of so yeah. many of the things that we try to teach and to communicate mm -hmm. over at Storywalk. You know, when yeah. we're talking about put the work first, the work is the most important thing. This mm -hmm. is a perfect example of yes. that. When we talk about, you know, the unnecessary exceeding yeah. of expectations. Exactly. The unnecessary commitment to detail, to character, mm -hmm. to vulnerability. Mm -hmm. This works not just as an original and progressive piece of programming. Yeah. It works as a story mm -hmm. on its own. And I think that it's going to stand apart even yeah. when the final list of, of all the episodes of Buffy is compiled. Mm -hmm. If Hush isn't at the top of that list, and Hush arguably won't be at the top of that list, it's going to be very close to the top, I'm it's, certain of that. I can't imagine it getting pushed out of the top five. I can't either. Yeah. But even if it's in the top five, it's going to come with a little note next to it saying, yeah, yeah but this is Hush. This is a very special 
episode, Absolutely. I think. Uh, as, as terrible as that phrase is generally in usage, it, this is the one of the pinnacle episodes of television. I cannot express adequately, I think, how important this episode is just in general. Um, and so, so well done. Mm -hmm. It's good TV. Mm -hmm. We've covered that at some length. To what extent is Hush good Buffy? And to what extent is its success dictated by the degree to which it is or is not good Buffy? I think it's fantastic, Buffy. I yeah. think this is one of the episodes that sort of, if you've been feeling shaky about the transition of Buffy to college, I think Hush is one of those episodes that let you relax a little bit and say, okay, we're in a different space because we're yes. we're in a new phase of Buffy. It, um, but it, it kind of brings in a level of maturity to not just the characters, but to the storytelling itself. Well, and it manages to integrate yeah. so many of our ongoing plot lines. Mm -hmm. We've got the initiative and we've got yep. Spike and we've got Xander and Anya. We've got, well, we could potentially have Giles and <laughs> Olivia. Yes. It manages to make those plot threads mm -hmm. feel indispensable, feel as though they are absolutely connected to the yeah. core of of the buffy verse it's it's a triumph and there's it's, really not that much that we can say right. let's do the formal thing i guess and sure. put it on the list of every buffy episode ever where do you think it should go oh i don't know i was thinking <laughs> number one yeah yeah there isn't i think an argument for putting it anywhere else yeah. anywhere else mm -hmm. you could argue i suppose if you are primarily invested in buffy for the long-term storytelling for mm -hmm. the long season arcs if that's what drives you if that is what keeps you in your seat in front of your buffy box set yes just watching episode after episode i could see that any short form story might struggle to compete against something like graduation sure. day part one or two for mm -hmm. example if you are that person then i could see maybe tucking Hush in right under Graduation Day Part 1 and Part 2. Yeah. For me, though, it's not even a contest. Yeah, no, I kind of not. want to put it first, and then I kind of want to bump Graduation Day down to, like, fourth. <laughs> and just leave... <laughs> empty air between. Just leave empty air between exactly. them to indicate just how accomplished just this episode is. Just how incredible And that's to take is. nothing away from Graduation Day, from Lover's Walk, from Pangs, from Prom, from Becoming yeah. Part 1 and 2. Mm -hmm. Those are great episodes of television. Those are great episodes of Buffy. Hush stands... Apart, yeah. though, as I said, probably not at the top of the list when all is said and done. It, there it are great episodes of Buffy be. to come. Yeah, we've we've still got. We're not. It's not all downhill from here. It absolutely <laughs> isn't. It absolutely isn't. And I'm looking forward to the rest of season four too. Oh, I think yeah. there are going to be some episodes mm -hmm. competing for that top spot even before the end of the season. Yeah. Never mind before the end of the show as a whole. Do we have anything else to say about Hush? Gosh, I don't. <laughs> In think one so. of our longest episodes exactly. of Dusted for quite a while. <laughs> No, I think that I've expressed pretty much everything that I had. You know, it's yeah. pretty magnificent. But so much of its magnificence is evident on the screen that yeah. to to talk about it at great length would kind of be gilding the lily. Mm -hmm. And I fear that uh, I fear that we're uh, coming up on that now. Yes. So let's draw a veil over the rest of Hush. There will, of course, be a short spoiler section yes. after the music at the end of today's show. There's a thing or two that we should probably discuss. Maybe mm -hmm. I guess. But that's it for our discussion of Hush. As I said, next Monday we're going to talk about. About the 11th episode of the fourth season of Buffy Doomed. On Thursday, though, we will be turning our attention to Parting Gifts, the 10th episode of the first season of Angel and the follow-on from the unfortunate death of yeah. Doyle. 
that's a great episode too. Mm-hmm. So it's stick around. We've got some great stuff to talk yeah. about in the next few weeks and months here on Dusted. Guys, thank you so much for listening. As Lonnie said earlier, we will be discussing the modern horror phenomenon known as the Slender Man on Wednesday on our pop culture podcast, The Light Bulb. You can find the links to that over at storywonk.com. So feel free to subscribe on iTunes, on Stitcher, via YouTube, however you like to get your podcasts. All of our shows are available. And you may not know, but we have other podcasts too. If you're interested in Outlander, then might I recommend our podcast, The Scott and the Sassanac, available on storywonk.com, as is our Veronica Mars podcast, We Used to Be Friends. And if you would like to hear more of me, and hey, we know that you want to hear more of me, then you can subscribe to my thrice-weekly writing podcast, where for 10 minutes on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I talk about the art and the craft of writing. That's The Journeyman Writer, also available at storywonk.com. That's it for this time. I need to go and rest my throat <laughs> but we'll be back right after the music with our spoiler zone guys thanks so much for listening until next time I'm Alistair Stevens and I'm Lonnie Diane Rich and this is Dusted so a couple of things to cover mm-hmm. in the, this week's spoiler zone uh, first off I guess we should say that this is the last we're going to see of Olivia yeah that's she it she is well not quite the last I suppose she's mentioned later mm-hmm. in the season yes. and she appears in Giles' Dream and Restless sure mm-hmm. but that's but that's pretty it. much it and what Olivia. we get is inconsequential so yeah. uh, alas poor Olivia we hardly knew you which is a shame I like to see Giles getting some <laughs> having a good time getting rid of that sweater for a little bit a little crumpet to go just... with his tea perhaps <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I, I wish that their relationship had been better. I also wish that it had been more substantial, as it is. Yeah. You know, I wish she'd been been written can, more as a character and less of a of a stand-in, just beautiful yeah. girl for for Giles. So, She's yeah. no Jenny Calendar, that's for sure. <laughs> this episode also sees, as we mentioned in the body of the show, the point of inflection. I guess this is the moment at which Riley and Buffy yeah. uncover to a degree each other's secrets. Yes. So there's going to be a little more to address in that regard. Mm-hmm. This is an interesting point of movement in their relationship, and Mm -hmm. it's oftentimes viewed as the point at which Riley begins to fall apart. Mm -hmm. I'll be really interested to see how that shakes out. Well, it's one of these things. We see this happen quite frequently on Gilmore Girls, written by Amy Sherman Palladino and created by her, um, where we will have these guys who are terrific and just great. And then as soon as they actually enter into a relationship with one of our our girls, they turn into just these terrible, weaselly, rotten, useless slugs. Absolutely on board with your assertion that when the men in Goma Girls start relationships, they get worse. Yeah. I'm not sure that their starting point is terribly high either. Okay, fair enough. Max Medina's pretty fair much enough. the worst... <laughs> before we'll, they start we'll talk about that in our Gilmore Girls podcast but it is it is something <laughs> that soon, plagued right? it is something that plagued uh, Gilmore Girls and it may be something that happens with Riley right. is that Riley Riley up until they've gotten together which is starting now um, has been really really pretty good and I don't remember liking him that much no, that's to the this thing. point so in I'm not memory, sure when he goes bad I would have described this as the point where Riley actually takes an uptick yeah uh, because yeah. I remembered him being just an awful intrusion for the first half of the season and then he gets better and then arguably worse and then arguably worse yeah so i don't know it'll be interesting to see what happens at this point yeah though if we're talking about relationships and we must talk about relationships yes the big one yeah this is the start of willow and tara yes 
This is just great. Yeah. The moment uh, when they hold hands. When they hold hands. And there's just this moment of recognition. You can see it in their eyes. And I love, and of course, you know me, I love a romance that's built on people who work well together. Exactly. And when you say a moment of recognition, that's exactly it. It's a moment of of absolute synthesis, of compatibility that goes so far beyond, I'm hot, you're hot, let's be hot together. Exactly. They Mm -hmm. are really responding to something fundamental in each other. And Mm -hmm. it's just great and at the end when tara says i can see you know what you are you know that she She knows specialness yeah yeah, she knows what willow is and i love that she can see that yeah 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 because it's too often a characteristic that Mm -hmm. well in some versions of willow yeah is Mm -hmm. is underplayed you know willow's lack of self-awareness in that regard Mm -hmm. her i feel as though some writers will in an effort to have Willow recognize her own specialness, will will make her somewhat less substantial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but Whedon's Willow absolutely needs to be reminded yes. of that, mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful moment. Willow and and Tara will mm-hmm. be the best relationship through the whole show, perhaps. Oh yeah, I don't know. I love, <laughs> I love me some Buffy. There are and Spike. people out there. Um, but uh, but yeah, no. This is. I think this is one of the. You know, until it goes horribly, horribly wrong. One of the best um, instances of of a real loving, mature relationship. Yeah. on television um you I know forget so. that it was the first committed lesbian relationship on television which was a nice you know at least the first relationship the first real lesbian relationship we saw was based in love and respect and compatibility and all of these tracks. wonderful things it's not just i'm hot you're hot that's yeah. definitely true but it also tracks in great part mm-hmm. willow's fault yeah and yeah. that makes it, you know, really difficult, it makes but it's also, it so also sad, very dramatically yeah. necessary. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely wonderfully executed. And I love the character of Tara. I love the way that she is built and revealed as we go through, you know, the the next couple of years with her. Um, it, it's just so much fun. It's so fun to see it all start, yeah. you know, and know what we have in store. Oh, and there's a great deal of, of sweetness and yes. gentleness over the course of the next few episodes. Mm-hmm. I, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. And of course, yeah, it, it ends tragically. Yeah. Um, in one of the most striking, mm-hmm. brutal, you know, yeah. oh, uh, God. moments in, in, in Buffy. Yeah. It's going to be difficult. I, I, I'm kind of thinking through, you know, my response to it right now mm-hmm. and kind of already anticipating just how hard that is going to be because we're going to spend a lot of time yeah. watching <laughs> Willow and Tara fall apart. Yeah. And then the final reconciliation is going to be punctuated by this. Yeah. This incredibly important mm-hmm. moment. And there is some criticism. I, th- I think generally a, a heedless kind of criticism of of Tara's death. Yeah. And how that storyline ends and and the way that it the way that the death itself is leveraged to pull Willow into her storyline for mm-hmm. the end of season 6. And I can understand some people not liking that. Yeah. But to suggest that it's done carelessly? Yeah. Is indefensible. No. Yeah, I, I don't think that that's a, a yeah. justifiable position on this because whatever happened with Tara, however you feel about it personally, however you may have not liked it, um, it was done with with purpose and narrative weight and it earned its space. Oh, yeah. 
you know. Many times over, yeah. in, in a number of different levels from a number of different yeah. perspectives, yeah. We will, of course, talk about that in the course of the next oh, year yeah. or but so, But for right now, it's happy, it's happy times, so let's enjoy our happy, happy times. To we There's have a lot, a lot of happy times. Oh, yeah. I should say, too, of course, when mm-hmm. I was talking about Tara's introduction in yeah. this episode, the possibly superior, more striking, more shocking, more accomplished introduction mm-hmm. that I was referring to is, of course, Dawn's at the end of... Uh, oh, sure. At the end of Buffy versus Dracula at the beginning of season five. Yeah, so. that's pretty wild. But that, a very different kind of character <laughs> introduction. Very different kind of character and also and something that is say, full of controversy. Though yeah. I'm just setting myself up for, you know, an epiphany when we actually get to season mm-hmm. five and I discover, much to my shock, that I love Dawn. Right. I dare say <laughs> that Tara is a more accomplished and beloved character. I think so. I think absolutely. And the thing is <laughs> I don't like think I'm going out too far on a limb there. Yeah. When we get to Dawn, it's gonna be really interesting because while I understand why people didn't like Dawn as a character in the way that she was written, I kind of love the way that that plot element, that narrative element was executed. Oh, yeah. So I'm very much looking forward to that. It's gonna be a lot of fun. I Guys, know. thank you for sticking with us through the spoiler zone. We'll be back on Thursday to talk about parting gifts. That's gonna be a really fun one oh, too. Yeah. Someone new comes to town over an angel. <laughs> Guys, thanks for listening. We'll be back on Thursday. Until then, take care. Grr. Arg.